Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We're beginning this particular morning with a topic best restricted to adults only. It's a candid look at what is euphemistically known as the oldest profession. Although prostitution is condemned and outlawed almost everywhere in our country, some say the effectiveness of those laws may call for a second look. Lee Cowan will be reporting our cover story. Every city has that part of town, home to an industry many would rather not talk about. But the legal status of prostitution is being increasingly debated with powerful views on both sides. Decriminalizing is punting. It's simply saying we're throwing up our hands and don't know how to handle this. The hubris of current politicians to think that they will suddenly explain to men that buying sex is not a good idea and that the men will just stop is shocking to me. How should the buying and selling of sex be enforced? Or should it? Ahead on Sunday morning. From there, it's on to an actress who's not so simple to categorize, considering the range of roles she plays. Her name is Lucy Liu, and Moraka has her story. On the big screen, Lucy Liu has always found a way to connect. I've had many roles that are quite fiery and uh, have had a lot of exclamation points after the name, so I think it's nice to change it up a little bit. (laughs) And now she's connecting the dots. My name is Joan Watson. On the hit series Elementary. What does it cost us to tread lightly? This is a precinct, which is where we shoot a lot. Lucy Liu, ahead on Sunday morning. Take it slow is advice that serves as an antidote to the stress of our times. And it's advice, as Seth Doan will show us, that one foreign broadcaster has taken to heart. The reindeer were migrating this past week in Norway, and slow TV was there to capture every minute of it, live, for six and a half days. You admit your own show is boring? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's uh, much, of, much of life itself, it's, it's boring. But in between there, there are some excitement moments, and you just have to wait for them. Wait for it, and then keep waiting. The rapid rise of slow TV, later on Sunday morning. Diane Lane is an actress with some memorable movies on her resume, Anthony Mason talks with her for our Sunday profile. Because they belong together. Actress Diane Lane was just 14 years old when she became a cover girl. You make one film and it lands you on the cover of Time magazine. Later on Sunday morning. You think I lived up to it? So you stand there and I'm here and you lean towards me. The many roles of Diane Lane. And we'd sing the song and this was the sides of the ship. And we're sailing away in our ship. (laughs) I'll have some questions for former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Rita Braver tells us how music influenced painter Marc Chagall. Steve Hartman visits a young robotics team learning their lessons and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
the oldest profession is a subject the youngest among us need not hear about. So parents, consider yourselves cautioned. How to deal with prostitution is a question for which there are no easy answers. As Lee Cowan reports in our cover story. It was like any Monday evening in Seattle. The Emerald City sparkled, Mount Rainier hovered in the distance, and along Aurora Avenue, business was booming. Every city has its underbelly, where sex is bought and sold. Arrests are being made, but what might surprise you is just who's being arrested. It's not those selling sex, women and young girls, although to be clear, men are prostitutes too. Instead, Seattle has shifted its focus to arresting their customers, those buying the sex. We're not trying to harass uh, women who are caught up in the trade. We're not trying to add to their burdens. We're actually trying to help. Six years ago, Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes adopted what's called the Nordic Model, a strategy pioneered in Sweden that aims to reduce sex trafficking by cutting off demand. What we have been doing historically, and what most of the country still continues to do, is to further victimize women that are caught up in the life. According to the International Labor Organization, human trafficking is a $32 billion a year industry, and many who are trafficked for sex are under the age of 18. That's how old Marin Stewart was when she entered the trade. There was always something that kept me in the life. There were always reasons that I needed to stay longer. I should have been murdered many times. I should have died of an overdose many, 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 many times. How did you survive it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. She considers herself an abolitionist, calling prostitution nothing short of modern-day slavery. And Seattle's focus on buyers and not the sellers, she says, is an enlightened, modern approach. The women are not being treated like they're bad and that they're dirty and that this is just who they are. You're going to need to just hang in there, though. She now works for a Seattle nonprofit called the Organization for Prostitution Survivors, a group that not only provides services for women, but also helps counsel the men who buy them, too. The men who are buying the sex are buying it from a very broken place in their heart where they're trying to fill a void. They're trying to numb whatever pain they have. They're trying to feel powerful. They're trying to feel in control um, and desirable. You know, prostitution, it's called a trick for a reason. It's called a trick because he's paying for the illusion of consent. He's paying for the illusion of mutuality. When in fact, what we know is that it's not a mutual sexual experience. Peter Qualiatine works here as well and leads a 10-week class on the consequences of prostitution. Anyone caught buying sex in Seattle is now required to attend that class by law. Until we take on the issue of demand and the issue of why men feel entitled to pay for sex in the first place, we're really not going to be able to move the needle in any significant way. Let's just see where these girls are going to go, for example. Seattle is unique in employing its buyer beware model. Most major cities practice a zero-tolerance approach to prostitution. And you might be surprised to learn that includes the city of Las Vegas. If we suspected that they were involved in prostitution in this area, they'd be a prime target to watch. That's right. Prostitution is not legal in Sin City. But Lieutenant Patricia Spencer of the Vice and Sex Trafficking Section of the Vegas Police Department says 
Most people seem to think otherwise. It's, it's everywhere. It's not just on the street. It's not just in a casino. It's, it's everywhere. Unlike Seattle, Las Vegas cracks down on everyone, the sellers as well as the buyers. Lieutenant Spencer doesn't see that as victimizing the victims. In her experience, the arrests help identify those too afraid to identify themselves. I've talked to numerous survivors that say it's, it saved their life. Being arrested. Being arrested. We open the door for help. And if we don't do that, who's going to do it? If I don't offer them help, who's going to? No one. There's no one going to help them. Rethinking just how or even whether to crack down on prostitution has been making headlines. Last year, while acknowledging the harms that come with the sex industry, Amnesty International called for the decriminalization of consensual sex work, saying laws against that force women into the shadows, which can compromise their safety. It doesn't help people with no options to take away their source of income, but it sounds good. Carolyn McLeod calls herself a sex worker, not a prostitute. She's a Seattle mother of two who, despite the fact it's illegal, sees it as her right to run her body as a business. I choose this. I say to people when they say no one would choose this, I say, I do. I choose this because I'm proud of what I do. She knows she's largely the exception and sympathizes with those who aren't doing this willingly. But she says the best way to protect them and at the same time to preserve her rights is to legitimize what she does. It would bring it out of darkness and back streets and into the light. What might decriminalization look like? Carolyn says just the way she practices her sex work now. She has no pimp. She doesn't roam the streets. She works out of a condo she rents with two other women. And she says they all have strict safety guidelines. All of my uh, clients need to have references from other sex workers. And if they don't have references, then a potential client would have to give me their real first name and their real workplace. And I will call them at work through the main switchboard and verify all of that. Her point, and this is controversial, is that sex traffickers don't generally trade in places where buying sex is permitted. And that, she says, keeps everyone safer. There is a huge population of sex workers who are doing this in a healthy way. And you don't see us because we're not causing problems. Sherry's Ranch may be the halfway point in this debate over prostitution. It's one of a handful of brothels in rural Nevada where prostitution is legal but regulated under state law. Alyssa, a single mom, left working the streets of Seattle to move and work here instead, where she says she feels someone is watching out for her. You come here, you sit down, and you tell me, this is what I want to happen. I want this and this and this to happen. And I tell you what I'm going to charge for that and what I'm comfortable with doing and what the rules are. And that's what happens. There's no gray area. What do you say to people who think that this is just a crazy lifestyle, that no single mom should be doing this? I tell them it's not their life. (laughs) And um, you don't walk my shoes every day. And I'm actually... I I live a very clean, safe life. I go home and do my cooking, cleaning chores. I mean, you don't grow up thinking, I want to be a prostitute when I get older. Um, But I mean, things happen in your life and you make different decisions. Dina, the brothel's madam, says state regulation gives those working in the sex industry at least some protection. The state's watching us and they're not going to play with any funny business. So everything is up and up legit. Still, 
Critics say anything short of outlawing prostitution altogether amounts to the legal acceptance of objectifying women. Is there going to be a theme? I, yes. Dina says that's not what this is about. She sees it as giving women a choice and offering a safe place to make a new start. This is just a means to an end. This should be a stepping stone into something better and greater. Alyssa, Caroline, Marin, each a different face of an age-old question. Is prostitution an illicit vice or a lawful business? Is it sex work or sexual exploitation? The divide is deep and the battle lines are being drawn. However uncomfortable, an issue long in the shadows seems to be hiding no more. Ahead, how Lever Brothers cleaned up. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, May 7th, 1925, 92 years ago today. The day British manufacturer William Lever died at age 73. Together with his brother James, William Lever founded a soap company, known appropriately enough as Lever Brothers. The brothers found success with Sunlight Soap and in the 1890s expanded into the United States, where Lifebuoy Soap became a familiar brand. William Lever's company survived his death and after later merging with a Dutch company, was rechristened as Unilever in 1930. Many new products and advertisements followed over the years. Presenting some more of the 2000 body parts. Including this cheeky 1990s commercial, touting all the body parts that can be cleaned with Lever 2000 soap. The small of your back, the backs of your thighs, elbows, knees, even parts that surprise. And it's not just soap. Unilever sells lots of different foods as well, including Hellman's mayonnaise, Lipton tea, and Ben and & Jerry's ice cream. Besides all that, Unilever can also claim credit for a clean break in urban architecture. Lever House, the corporate headquarters it opened in 1952, was the very first modern glass-walled office building to open on Park Avenue in New York City. And though it's since been sold, Lever House remains and was named a New York landmark in 1982. Coming up, Marc Chagall. Music was his muse. Painter Marc Chagall is beloved for his bold and colorful brushstrokes. This morning, Rita Braver tells us how Chagall's deep love of music figures into his distinctive style. Marc Chagall is renowned as one of the most distinctive artists of the 20th century. Sometimes you look at a piece and you're not sure if it's this artist or that artist, but you can always tell a Chagall, unless somebody's imitating him, of course. Yes, and uh, I think it's because uh, he has this group of kind of archetypes, these images that he returns to, images that are part of his memories, his imagination, part of popular culture as well. Anne Grace is curator at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, home to a Marc Chagall retrospective that will travel to Los Angeles in July. 
the exhibit takes a unique approach, exploring the role music played in Chagall's life and in shaping his work. When we look at his paintings, we're moved by a kind of musicality that he has and this uh, way of expressing himself in such a, a sincere and immediate way that we can't help but be struck by, by his works. Chagall was known to love Bach and Mozart. But it was the music of his small Hasidic Jewish community near Vitebsk, Russia, that first influenced him. Born in 1887, the eldest of nine children, Marc Chagall was particularly entranced by the idea of the floating fiddler. It becomes this perfect symbol, and in a way it was a symbol for himself as well. Because he wandered for most of his life from place to place. Yeah, and so it's the image of the wandering Jew. You can see that he's floating above uh, this village. Wander he did. In 1907, Chagall moved to St. Petersburg to study art, and then to Paris, experimenting with the Cubist style in vogue there, but never abandoning his personal artistic vocabulary. So this is a real self-portrait. Yes, we really... And it is quite a self-portrait. <laughs> we really see Chagall affirming himself. And uh, it's obvious where he is because, look, uh, we see... He's the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, so the ultimate symbol of modernity. Uh, so Paris to the left and uh, his native city of uh, Vitebsk to the right. By 1914, his work starts to sell in Europe. But homesick for his sweetheart, Bella, Chagall travels home to marry her. They end up back in France. But then, the rumblings of World War II and the implications for a Jewish artist. At the beginning, it seems like he doesn't even realize that what's going on in Germany is going to end up having an impact on him and his work. Yes, he's amazingly uh, distant from what's happening. He actually uh, buys a house in, the, in Provence. He sets up a studio, and so his focus is on his art. Luckily, he did get out. Chagall is allowed to take refuge in the United States in 1941. And once here, his interaction with music soars to new heights. Soon, he's asked to create sets and costumes for productions like the New York City Ballet's Firebird, where replicas of Chagall's creations are still used 68 years later. It's very, like, old-world Russia stylized. I love that. Teresa Reichlin performs the lead role in the production, the story of a magical bird who saves a prince from an evil wizard, all brought to life through Chagall's imagination. For a dancer, what kind of inspiration do you draw from the costumes and the sets in a work like this? Um, I guess it just helps me to get into character and not feel like I have to be a typical ballerina. You have to be a little sharper, you have to kind of have like bird-like movements and fast hands and feet. Chagall returned to his beloved France in 1948, continuing to pursue his favorite themes. creating perhaps his greatest musically inspired work, the ceiling of the Paris Opera House, dramatically reproduced in the exhibit. From his very humble beginnings to great uh, recognition of his talent, we can see that he really was an artist who was 
inspired by the goodness of humankind, uh, the possibility of changing the world. Marc Chagall died in 1985 at age 97. And despite the personal and political turmoil that he witnessed, never abandoned his optimistic view of life, leaving a legacy of work that continues to make us dream. Can we see Apple Take Two? Ahead, actress Lucy Liu. I'm a detective. I'm ready to embrace that. It was kind of a cultural clash to be Chinese and to live in America. Watson's come a long way. And later, TV takes it slow. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As her artwork makes clear, it's not so simple to put a label on Lucy Liu. Actress, director, artist, and single mother. She's a woman of many talents, as our Moraka discovered. This is a precinct, which is where we shoot a lot. There's a bathroom here, but it actually goes out into the morgue. <laughs> so you go to the bathroom, you end up in the morgue. <laughs> on Elementary, CBS's take on Sherlock Holmes, Watson is a woman, played by Lucy Liu. Our work, what we do, it's not just a job now, it's who I am. Hey. But that's not the series' only distinguishing feature. Just wanted to see how you were doing. So the dynamic is usually that Sherlock is brilliant, almost infallible, and Watson is kind of worshipful, kind of tagging along, right? But not here. (laughs) It's different because Sherlock is fallible. He's got uh, an addiction problem. She started with him as a sober companion, and Mm. then it's turned into a partnership. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you telling me I need to be nicer? You can be nice. I know that you can. You have this tiny little zone of courtesy, but you're only ever willing to extend it to me. Listen, I am committed to this job. You know that I am. I think it's fair to say it's a much quieter role. It's a role that I have learned patience with. I've had many roles that are quite fiery and uh, (laughs) have had a lot of exclamation points after the name. So I think it's nice to change it up a little bit. (laughs) Yes, it's definitely a change from the rock'em, sock'em roles she's played in movies. And it's the first that's connected with one fan in particular. Is this the first thing that your mother has really grooved to? Absolutely. No that's hesitation. funny. Because <laughs> you've all these blockbusters, but it's this show that she's really... This show, like, she understands. She was a huge Columbo fan. Now I've made it big time, because I'm on a detective show. <laughs> and this is the house I grew up in. Yeah. Lucy Liu was raised in the New York City borough of Queens. What language did you speak in the house growing up? Chinese originally, and then when my sister went to school, we started speaking a little bit of English, sort of a Chinglish, a little mixed bag. Her parents immigrated from China. They are definitely people that worked very hard and uh, had that whole idea of the American dream, um, and they pursued it. But she kept her dream of acting a secret when she went off to the University of Michigan, where she auditioned for a production of Alice in Wonderland, and was cast in the lead role. 
when you saw the cast list, I mean, that must have been... It was shocking. I thought there was a mistake, a big mistake. I kept following the name to the character, (laughs) and I was in shock. Growing up as somebody from another country, really, you know, not what you see on television, I never saw myself in the forefront ever. Mm -hmm. You know, we were always in the background. But soon after moving to L.A., Lou would get used to being in front of the camera. How did you get the role in Ally McBeal? I don't know. I don't know. I went into the audition, and everyone was basically Caucasian. And there was um, me, and then there was, like, one African-American person. So I was like, okay, so they're just doing this for the census, or I don't know. Lucy didn't get the part she auditioned for, but series creator David E. Kelly was impressed and wrote a role just for her, the acerbic Ling Wu. Ling, hi, welcome. My therapist told me to pay no mind to those who don't matter. A lot of people said that she was a bitch, but I felt that she was a very honest and very um, unmasked person and was very um, direct. Does anything nice come out of your mouth? And on the big screen, she made quite an entrance. On your knees, bitch. I want satisfaction. She dominated in payback. And she kicked butt in Charlie's Angels. At that point, I could do a lot of stunt work, fighting work on film. It was very comfortable for me. Has a lot of that stayed with you? Yes. So if somebody came up and tried to mug you. Tried to mug me in real life? Run. (laughs) All of this got the attention of director Quentin Tarantino. And he said he was writing something with me in mind. Could he show it to me? And I was like, sure, absolutely. (laughs) Is this a joke? (laughs) The film was Kill Bill and Lou's mob boss character was both regal and ruthless. And I always knew that she was going to die not of old age, essentially. You know what I mean? She was going to go down and there was going to be blood involved. The death certificate was not going to say no. died quietly in her sleep <laughs> exactly. at 80. She fell asleep and that was it. <laughs> the scene where Lou's character meets her end is considered one of Tarantino's finest, a directing tour de force. I think it's too late. We had it before where they were... They were come booming down and... And it inspired five, Lucy to direct some episodes of Elementary. I love directing. It has opened up my world so much. I love working with the crew on a different level. All of the pistons are firing. Emotionally, communication, creativity, all of it. Creativity that she's also expressed on the canvas. As a visual artist, she's worked in a variety of media. I don't ever see it just being one thing. It evolves. But it's been a very important thing because that's something that I can do on my own in my studio without a crew of 200 people necessarily. Going solo was something Lucy Liu was well used to in her personal life. But that changed 19 months ago with the arrival of baby Rockwell, born via surrogacy. Having a family was something that I sort of started thinking about a little bit more later and thinking, well... Why isn't that a possibility, and shouldn't it be, and why was I always dismissing it? Were you surprised that you had that change of heart? I was. I was talking to somebody, and she said, Do you ever, did you ever think about it? And before she could even finish her sentence, I was like, no. 
And she's like, I didn't even finish my sentence. And I realized, you know, what is that about? That, you know, I'm so clear on what I don't want. What do you think it was that made you out of hand say no? I think it was the fact that my family had such a strong work ethic growing up. So I never really stopped to think that that's something that could help balance my life. And in fact, you know, my life has changed. I don't want to say dramatically since he's now here, but my life has opened up in a way that I never thought it could because the colors are just more rich, they're more bold. I don't know, I feel so loved in all directions. I feel incredibly lucky. It happened this past week, an announcement from Buckingham Palace Thursday that Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth's 95-year-old husband, has decided that he will no longer carry out public engagements from the autumn of this year. Born the nephew of the King of Greece, Prince Philip married Elizabeth in 1947. He has dutifully performed his role ever since, always following the Queen a deferential step behind. Though notorious for his occasional politically incorrect gaffes, Elizabeth spoke up gratefully for him some years ago. He has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. The palace made it clear that the 91-year-old queen will be continuing her full public schedule. Keep calm and carry on. Coming up. All aboard. As a knitter, I've been a beginner for about 30 years, but there's still no better way to take it slow. And if you're thinking knitting couldn't possibly make for gripping TV, Seth Doan wants to tell you there's an entire country that pointedly disagrees. It's television's version of taking a deep breath. A very long, very slow deep breath. It's called Slow TV, and it's a surprising smash hit in Norway. It began with this broadcast of a train journey from the coastal city of Bergen to the capital, Oslo. The formula was simple. Put a few cameras on a train and watch the scenery go by for seven hours. Did you know where that journey would lead, how successful it would be? No, not at all. <laughs> Runa Muklabust and Thomas Hellum are the brains behind the whole thing. We met at the Bergen train station. It's normally one of those ideas you get late night after a couple of beers uh, in the bar and when you wake up the other day, um, uh, it's not a good idea after all. But much to their surprise, there was a green light from their bosses at Norway's public broadcaster NRK2. Actually, we like it being a bit strange, a bit uh, crazy, because then it's, uh, then it's more fun. And if the viewers laugh or think that, oh, wow, this is too crazy, that's basically the kind of reaction you, you really want from the viewers. About a quarter of all Norwegians tuned in to watch some part of that train trip. 
They ran historical clips when the train went through a tunnel. But other than some music, there was no narration, no plot, and thanks to public broadcasting, no commercials. Yes, of course it's boring. You admit your own show is boring? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's uh, much, of, much of life itself, it's, it's boring. But in between there, there are some excitement moments and you just have to wait for them. Yeah, yeah. Since the train in 2009, they've experimented with other slow ideas. Oi, And folks at all levels have taken notice. I understand that in Norway, for example, one of the big hits on TV is National Firewood Night. This is true. Video of logs burning for hours. 12 hours in all. Then there was a national knitting night. Which started, of course, with shearing the sheep. Knitting the sweater came much later in the 13-hour broadcast. The shows get slower and slower. It has to be uh, unique, uh, not a copy of the last one. So we have to to push the boundaries uh, for each show, I think. The show titled Salmon Swimming Upstream ran 18 hours. And afterward, the head of the station said it felt too short. Is there a recipe for the perfect slow TV? It's important that it's an unbroken timeline, that you don't take away anything, that's everything that's in there. It's, all the boring stuff is in there, all the exciting things that's in there. So, so you as a viewer has to find out what's boring and what's interesting. It kind of requires you to, uh, to precisely to slow down, to kind of twist your head in a little bit of a different direction. Are you a fan of slow TV? I am. Espen Ertribarig is a professor of media studies at the University of Oslo. When you first heard about slow TV, did you think you'd like it? No, I, I thought the whole notion was weird, to tell you the truth. But it, it turned out that uh, at least some of it I found surprisingly uh, appealing. Ertri Barig likens slow TV to opening a sort of window, an escape valve from what he calls fast-paced eye candy TV. When did we come to accept that television should be this accelerated, busy, intense, in-your-face thing. At some point, that became the norm. The producers say one scene sums up their approach. Uh, Once we um, passed a cow on on one of our journeys, and we put a camera on it, and the camera just kept rolling, and we didn't cut away, and then you keep it, and then you keep it, and then you keep it, and then suddenly uh, a story evolves because what is the cow doing? And why is it walking there? And uh, where is it heading? And why is the cow alone? So suddenly there comes a story out of it. You have to see what happens. There was plenty of time to follow that cow because they came across it while shooting an episode which followed a cruise along Norway's coast. That cruise 
Well, it was five and a half days long. Slow TV broadcast all 134 hours of it live. At one point, almost half of Norway was watching. Norwegians lined the ship's route, often waving flags or welcoming it into port. There were unexpected cameos. A water skier in a mankini, for instance. Even the Queen of Norway made a surprise appearance. And the trip revealed some unexpected talent. You became something of a star. Well, <laughs> it wasn't meant like that. Anna Bildstein Hogberg, the ship's purser, remembered how one night seemed a little quiet. I just felt that we need to rock and roll a little bit. So, so for you me, picked up the mic? Yeah. Slow TV has been syndicated around the world, and since then, she gets recognized. People from Australia come and just, it's you! Slow TV episodes are special events. They're not on all the time. <laughs> the creators want them to stand apart from regular programming. All of this got us to thinking. I wanted to show you something and get your thoughts on this. We have something on Sunday morning called the moment of nature. It's at the end of every broadcast, and I thought you guys might like to see it. We leave you this Sunday morning among the bighorn sheep of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And how many seconds do you dare to keep it? <laughs> Watch. Uh, yes. Definitely. I, I get the feeling, yes. Slow TV? Yeah. In yeah. the making? Compared to other things, yes, it's definitely. And I guess you get a lot of good reactions on this one. The audience loves yeah. I guess the it's moment popular. of nature. Yeah, yeah. And they always want it to be longer. Yeah. Exactly. So make it longer. Make it that longer. means this piece has to be shorter, <laughs> yeah. so watch it. Stop this, stop this piece now. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Melting Pot. Circa 2017. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Some young science students in Indiana have been learning their lessons about a lot more than technology. Thanks to a competition our Steve Hartman has been tracking. When Pleasant Run Elementary in Indianapolis decided to launch a competitive robotics team last fall, okay. Coach Lisa Hopper said she had one goal and one goal only. Hold on. To avoid humiliation. Was that really your goal, not to embarrass yourself? That was my goal. For that, that was first it. competition, I said, I hope we don't embarrass ourselves. And if that happens, I'll be happy coach. The school is in a high-poverty neighborhood, so the kids don't have many resources and her fourth grade team didn't know the first thing about robotics. Nevertheless, the Pleasant Run PantherBots began studying and then designing a robot that could complete the assigned task. In the beginning, there were a few successes and a lot of failures. Although the kids say the biggest disappointment had nothing to do with their robot. At one of their first matches, 
an adult in the crowd heckled a Hispanic teammate, told him to go back to Mexico. I don't know why they, they did that. That was actually kind of hurtful for, for them to say that. The incident was demoralizing, but far from debilitating. In fact, it only made the kids work harder and stay after school later. It's motivating. I was so mad because that happened, but I was actually kind of glad because we beat their butts. <laughs> That's a poetic way of saying they channeled that insult into a victory at the city tournament. They went on to win at state, too, and just last week competed in the world championships in Louisville, Kentucky. They didn't win it all, but they made it to the final round. Hardly the humiliation their coach had feared. They started with nothing and, you know, created something fantastic. The kids are all now talking about technical careers. Someday they may build incredible robots. But for now, their greatest contribution remains purely human. All of our team, every, everybody in America, is has got to be mixed. It's a melting pot. Nice suit, son. Still to come, actress Diane Lane. It's only stuff, Clark. Superman's mom. It's okay. I'm a friend of your sons. I figured. The cape... It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Diane Lane played Superman's mom opposite Ben Affleck's Batman in last year's Batman vs. Superman. Quite a journey from her child actress start. Anthony Mason has a Sunday profile. This was it. Diane Lane's acting career began here. We used all this space. And the audience was on either side. On the stage of the La Mama Experimental Theater Club in New York, she was just six years old. But I played dead here a lot. Just lie really still. Don't let the flower petals fall off your chest when you inhale. This is what I remember. <laughs> At 52, she's had more starring roles than birthdays, playing opposite the Brat Pack in The Outsiders. Can I uh, interest you in Coca-Cola or 7 Up? Get lost, Hood! Earning an Emmy nomination in the epic TV western Lonesome Dove. I'll bring you a glass of buttermilk. I don't even like buttermilk, girl. And more recently... Nice suit, son. ...playing Superman's mom in Man of Steel. It's only stuff, Clark. Oh, it can always be replaced. She's grown up in show business and survived. There are so many child stars. Yeah, that's a, that's a term. That's a term. Do you not like that term? I don't know how I feel about that term. I mean, I feel sorry for whoever I hear that about, and I don't feel sorry for me. Lane grew up in New York, moving often between her parents, who divorced just after she was born. She lived in residential hotels with her father, and this grand old Broadway building with her mother. But it was a fixer-upper. <laughs> I'm being honest. And we never got it all the way fixed up. Her mom, Colleen Farrington, was a nightclub singer 
and Playboy's Miss October in 1957. Her dad, Bert Lane, was a drama coach who started driving a taxi so he'd have more flexible hours for his only child. He used to drive you around in his cab. Oh, yeah, I was his buddy. I, was, I would ride shotgun, front seat. When Diane was six, he dropped her off at her first audition. Had you actually done any acting at that point? No. No, my dad, he asked me if I wanted to be in a play. And you said? Of course I love to play. That's a stupid question because I didn't know what a play was. <laughs> Literally, that happened. She'd spend six years with La Mama. <gasps> you really have some goodies. <laughs> in the archives, Ozzy Rodriguez uncovered some vintage photos. I don't even know. Silver Queen. Okay, this is when I missed my cue. I fell asleep by the heater in winter. <laughs> That's what happened to me. You are so young here. So young. My face hadn't even formed yet. You're so They're wonderful. At 13, Lane was starring in a production of Runaways, bound for Broadway. But then director George Roy Hill offered her the lead in his next film. Did you have any temptation to turn that down? Laurence Olivier and George Roy Hill? And the first film that Orion Pictures ever made? No, I'm not that crazy. <laughs> in A Little Romance, she starred as an American girl who falls for a French boy, with Sir Laurence Olivier playing matchmaker. Will you join me in a hot chocolate and the pastry? I know delightful spot here, but... Thank you, You make one film, and it lands you on the cover of Time magazine. And Laurence Olivier calls you the next Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. No pressure there, right? What do you make of that at 14 years old? You don't. You, you compartmentalize it. I felt embarrassed, like, wow, will I ever be able to live up to it? Francis Ford Coppola thought she would. He cast her in three films in the 80s. In the last, The Cotton Club, a jazz-age gangster film. He never done it before. Lane played sultry nightclub singer Vera Cicero. Am I blue? Am I blue? Richard Gere was playing the trumpet in my ear, and I was supposed to be all confident. And I just wasn't really... Feeling it. Feeling it. It was the only fight I ever got into with Francis Coppola. He wanted me to be sexier, and he just finally said it. I don't know what that thing is that women do, but be sexy. And maybe because I had a showgirl for a mom, I found I was very reticent to do that. When it's asked of me to be sexy on cue, <laughs> I get a little gender pissed off. I feel like I was raised like a son, in a way, by my father, you know? I didn't feel genderized until... I started to promote films and realize, oh, it's a switch you're supposed to throw and be sexy. Buttons undone. Oh, thank you. But nearly 20 years later, she wasn't afraid to throw that switch. That's him. Why would he have your number? Again, starring with Richard Gere in Unfaithful, Lane played a frustrated wife who embarks on a torrid affair. I've read that you said that, that film was a lot harder to make than it looks. I still have a herniated disc from the kissing scene. 
I'm still seeing the chiropractor. It's been 16 years. What did you think when you finally saw the film? You know, when my dad saw it, it wasn't long before he died. And he had this to say. He said, you rang the bell. It earned Lane an Oscar nomination. In her latest film, Paris Can Wait, Lane has gone back to the Coppola family. Francis's wife, Eleanor Coppola, is the director. When that bell rings, I... Where do you want me? I mean, I made four films for Francis, and Eleanor was there. At age 80, it's Eleanor Coppola's debut as the director of a romantic comedy. I wanted to be a part of her moment. Oh, my word. Diane Lane has had many moments since she first landed on that cover of Time. I don't know. Do you think I lived up to it? The larger question is, what did you expect from yourself? Well, the voice I hear is my father's. And he would say, ah, you're a lifer. Who wants to do anything all of your life? It just seemed so preposterously long and unfathomable. But now I'm thinking, it's a pretty good gig. That's my professional life. Coming up, I came to Stanford at 25 years old. Professor Condoleezza Rice. Uh, so I... This morning we have questions for and answers from Condoleezza Rice, a first-hand eyewitness to huge changes overseas and here at home. Her eight years in the White House as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State were perhaps preordained. From the age of four, Condoleezza Rice, an only child, was president of her family. I was elected every year, and it had real responsibilities. Uh, for instance, if we were going to leave for Denver from Alabama, and I'd call a family meeting, we'd decide when we were leaving, what were we taking for food, all of those sorts of things. My parents were just giving me a sense that I could have authority and be confident. Did you vote for yourself? I did vote for myself. <laughs> <laughs> those annual trips to Denver were not for summer vacation. If you were black, you couldn't go to the University of Alabama for graduate school in 1961. And so my father, who was getting an advanced degree in student personnel administration, and my mother, who was qualifying to teach music in the schools, she was a science teacher before that, would go to Denver. As the daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of musicians, Condoleezza aspired to be a concert pianist and then went to this Aspen Music Festival school, met 12-year-olds who could play from sight what it had taken me all year to learn, and I was 17. And I thought, I'm going to end up one of those people who plays, uh, you know, as you shop in the department store or something like that, but I'm not going to Carnegie Hall. So halfway through college, inspired by an international relations course taught by the father of a future Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, she changed her major. I went back home and I said to my parents, I found it. I want to be a Soviet specialist. They said, you go for it. And she did. With a new Ph.D., she found a home at Stanford, where as a young assistant professor, she was noticed by a guest lecturer, President Ford's national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft. When you're young, you want to ask a question that people notice, and so it was probably slightly sharp, maybe even a little rude. But it took her career to a new, higher orbit. 
Brent came over afterwards and he said, um, I'd like to get to know you and I want you to start going with me to the Aspen Strategy Group, which was where a lot of the foreign policy establishment met. And when Scowcroft was named National Security Advisor by President George H.W. Bush, she went to the White House as a Soviet specialist. Twelve years later, she would return as National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush and later Secretary of State. I presume you stay in touch with President Bush? I do. Today, back at Stanford, Rice is best remembered for that post-9-11 decision to invade Iraq in 2003. The world with Saddam Hussein in it, he was a bad man. Yes. But no weapons of mass destruction. And then al-Qaeda in Iraq becomes ISIS, which is arguably far worse than Saddam Hussein was. Well, we have to get the timeline right here. First of all, what you know today can affect what you do tomorrow, but not what you did yesterday. And so we did not know at the time of the invasion that there were no stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. Despite eight years of war and the toll in lost lives and untold sacrifice, her conviction that it was the right decision has not wavered. The title of her latest book is Democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom, about the struggles for democracy she knows most intimately, including our own. She calls the civil rights movement of the 60s when she was growing up in Jim Crow, Alabama, the second founding of America. We forget in the United States how long it has taken us to make we the people mean people like me. And indeed, I do think that uh, America was born with a birth defect, with slavery. And so I do think that when we were finally able to deliver the promise of the Constitution to people like me, little girls growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, when finally my father was able to vote without difficulty, yes, it's the second founding of America. The first founding wasn't quite complete. I, Condoleezza Rice, do solemnly swear. Condoleezza Rice made history as the first African-American woman to take the oath as Secretary of State in 2005 at a time when the seeds of democracy were flowering around the world, though it didn't last. The Purple Finger elections in Iraq, and it was a high watermark in Egypt when they actually had an election that looked like it might be more democratic, and we'd seen the color revolution in Ukraine. And sometimes, unfortunately, as in Russia, you take a step backwards. Is it really possible, she asks provocatively, that one man could dismantle the institutional basis for democracy in his country in so short a time. Who is that man? I was talking about Vladimir Putin. Putin, she says, systematically unraveled the underpinnings of Russia's nascent democracy. What was really first was the assault on the press, and particularly the electronic press. He went after his own opponents, and more lately it's been adversaries who've ended up dead. But I don't believe that it is one man. What you're seeing is that the institutions just didn't get a very firm foundation in Russia. So it couldn't happen here? I don't think it can happen here. Are you sure? Nobody's ever certain about anything about democracy because uh, it is uh, always a work in progress. But the United States has such a DNA uh, about uh, not having executive power be too great. You probably know Vladimir Putin better than you know Donald Trump. That may be true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time with Vladimir Putin. 
Rice is unequivocal that Russia interfered in the 2016 U.S. election. I'm appalled, but if you ask me about the psychology of it, yes, I am a Russianist, and yes, I know Vladimir Putin, and that's why I say don't give him the satisfaction of thinking that he undermined our confidence in our own elections. He's an eye-for-an-eye kind of guy. We called his elections fraudulent in 2012, and they were. And so now he's going to make ours fraudulent. Characteristically blunt and outspoken, Rice called on Donald Trump to withdraw as a candidate for president last October. But this spring, accepted an invitation to the White House. My meetings with presidents of the United States are a private affair. But I will say this. I respect the presidency and the person who Americans elected. And I will do everything I can to try to make sure that on behalf of all of us, um, he succeeds. Next, JFK at 100. Still much to learn. The 29th of this month marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy. That's the subject of our commentary from Tom Oliphant, co-author of the new book, The Road to Camelot. We should note it's published by CBS's Simon & Schuster. Until a couple of years ago, I had no idea that John Kennedy rejected Lyndon Johnson barely two hours before he picked him as his running mate. He and his brother Robert had falsely assumed for months that Johnson didn't want the Veep spot. But when JFK suddenly realized Johnson was in fact lusting for the job, he and his brother batted it around but decided they really didn't want Johnson. The issue was trust. Still, they needed a way to placate the powerful Texan if they didn't pick him, but failed to find it. As Bob Kennedy ruefully put it, we came up with the idea of trying to get rid of him, and it didn't work. These bits of history are hardly deep, dark secrets. They have been hiding in plain sight for decades, mostly at the Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston, an amazing collection of some 25 million pieces of paper and more than 1,600 detailed oral histories. What astonished my writing partner, Curtis Wilkie, and me was that this gigantic record is largely untouched, and more stuff is becoming available all the time. Burrowing in those 60-year-old files, we discovered that Kennedy's beloved father was welcomed for his money much more than for his advice. We even found evidence that Candidate Kennedy knew all about the looming Bay of Pigs invasion from his friends, not the CIA. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon. And his own polls showed that while Richard Nixon certainly looked terrible during those famous debates, they barely affected the horse race. This is the tip of an immense iceberg. Our little book is just a start. There is still a ton of work to do. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.